Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we speak to Alex Manning, an assistant professor of sociology at Hamilton College. Alex explains how his work builds on and complicates Annette LaRoe's writings on class reproduction and parenting. In particular, Alex discusses a form of concerted cultivation employed by parents of color across the economic spectrum. We also discuss how LaRoe provides a model of how to do theory in a manner that is both intellectually impressive and impressively accessible. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Kyle. Thanks for having me. So we are here to talk about Annette LaRoe. Could you just start by giving us a sense of, of what Annette LaRoe is known for or who she is? Yeah. So Annette LaRoe uh, is a sociologist who's a prof- currently a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She's had a long and prominent career studying families and how their social class has an impact on their life experience. Uh, she's really known for doing qualitative work, particularly ethnography and in-depth interviewing, and really on this dynamic between families and schools in order to demonstrate how social class works in tandem with culture, sort of everyday social interactions, and importantly, social institutions, and how that reproduces inequality. And her work's really, it's very much in uh, dialogue with Pierre Bourdieu, which is really theories about social reproduction, cultural capital, and how people sort of internalize their internalized dispositions or habits. And her book, Unequal Childhoods, is her most known work. Uh, In this book, she studies how middle-class families and working-class families, uh, black and white families, I think Philadelphia or Pennsylvania or East East Coast City parent, uh, move through daily life and how how their children experience childhood. Uh, And her central argument, which continues to hold weight today, considerable weight, is that middle-class families use particular parenting repertoires or styles. She calls this either concerted cultivation for middle-class families is a match or a cultural match and valued by social institutions like school and work. While working-class parents uh, parent in a style called the natural accomplishment of growth. And this style sort of denigrated and viewed by society and social institutions is unhelpful for sort of your future children's life chances. And because of this, working-class children develop a sense of sense of constraint and how they move through the social world. And middle-class children develop a sense of entitlement. This is how, and her point really is that this makes invi- this is an invisible way that inequality is reproduced, but her work makes it visible. Do you get a sense that she is widely read in the larger discipline, or is she more associated with a particular field, like um, I guess like the sociology of education or something like that? Yeah. So her book, I mean, that she became known for was published in 2003 originally, or Unequal Childhoods, and since then it's become really a kind of a contemporary classic. It's widely read. I think generally in sociology, I actually looked this up, it's the 12th most cited work since 2008. And and for, that's sociology articles. For scholars who work in areas of culture, the reproduction inequality, families, and ed- education, it is a must read. Yeah, and I suppose this idea of reproduction in class is so central to the discipline as a whole. Correct, yeah. When did you first hear about her ideas or when did you, where did you first encounter her work? Yeah, this was fun to think about. But is uh, it was actually when I was a first year graduate student, and I was a TA, a teaching assistant, uh, for a social problems course, and it was just assigned. And like you know, uh, and we just read an excerpt. Uh, it was I think it was might have been an introduction or maybe a couple pages from one of the chapters. 
So that was the first time uh, I read it. Okay, so you would never. Now you were an undergraduate major in sociology as well. Correct. Is that correct? And like, now there's a chance I read it in undergrad, but I, the, that when I studied sociology, we didn't do as much on that. We did a lot more, so more criminal justice based and older theories, <laughs> right? But I don't remember. I don't remember reading Annette Leroux. I don't. So then you read it. You read it as a TA. What was that experience like reading it? Why was it that it, that it stuck out to you? Yeah. So it was. It stuck out to me, uh, one, because I was impressed just with the scope of the work and the topic, right? So I, I loved sort of the conversations and the stories uh, shared by the participants, basically the families, uh, the parents, and the children. And I felt like she was articulating a lot of what I thought about growing up and after also I sort of went to college. And I say this because I attended a racially diverse and a socioeconomically diverse high school in the city. But it was very much stratified in the school based off class and race, and also determined like and people what people did after they left high school. And I witnessed how sort of strategic parents were, how involved they were, and how some youth seemed more much more comfortable uh, with interacting with you know teachers, school administrators, etc. And so I literally like she was just speaking to this kind of experience that clearly I had, I was thinking about, but she articulated in a really clear way and had a powerful for having such this kind of larger social implications. Now you went beyond just finding it to be an enjoyable reading to, to use in the classroom or to use as a TA to actually engaging with it. So what, what pushed you to do more than simply just read it, teach it, and then move on and maybe use it every time you, you get to get a chance to design your own syllabus? Yeah. So I think one, because especially in the, for the students in the United States, it really is it's a connection point for lots of people, right? It's connection points. You think about how you relate to your parents, how you relate through school, how do you move through the world. And then I came back to it more because I continue to study uh, in these areas, particularly to unpack sort of how parents continue to, how parent styles look today since she, since she did her work. And then really to actually go a little bit more in depth into other things rather than just social class. For instance, I ta- really thought about more race, right? I thought about how the parenting styles of, uh, my black peers, my own black mom, other fam- families of color, and sort of how their parenting styles meshed or didn't mesh necessarily with what LaRoe was talking about. And also, I want to add competitive youth sports culture. I'm really interested in that, and I kept, kept coming back to what she's talking about in terms of how parents structure their kids' time or are very involved in selecting things for their children to do. And I see that a lot in sort of intensive or uh, in competitive youth sports. So in terms of an idea of LaRose that, that you're most clearly building on, is it fair to say it's that just kind of teasing out those two different parenting models, or is there some other concept that, that you're really engaging with? Yeah, it's fair to say those two, but I'll say it's mainly concerted cultivation and really focusing on this parenting style that she deems as a part of sort of a middle-class repertoire. And I continue to kind of reflect upon this and reference it and critique it in my own work. And really, just to be clear, so concerted cultivation is really like some specific examples include carefully chosen, organized extracurricular activities for your child, really actively molding their reasoning skills, meaning like you're having adult-like conversations with your seven-year-old kid, right? You don't treat, you don't talk down to them, or talk to them as that they can't uh, engage in this kind of back and forth, intervening on behalf of the school or on behalf of your child in school or other activities, right? The parent going and actively talking to a teacher saying, this is what my kid needs, right? And so it's very intensive and sustained. And I really, it stuck with me because again, I just think you see it everywhere. You see it kind of be normalized as the way to parent. Um, I'm really interested in kind of deconstructing that. 
All right, that's, that seems like a good point to transition more into your own scholarship, because I'm fascinated to see how these influences play out. So could you talk a bit more about what your research project has been and then how you see Leroux playing a role in that or having an influence? Yeah, so one, I think her work has greatly shaped uh, the way I understand and approach my scholarship generally, which is on youth sporting cultures and how families experience um, experience these cultures, why they get involved, what meaning they make out of it, and also the, how does race, class, and gender, and, large, and inequality at large kind of like basically structure and play out, right, within these sporting environments, youth sporting environments. And, and I basically, concerted cultivation is woven uh, throughout it. And so really, I see myself as really building on her ideas about parenting culture. But one, and one aspect I really want to add to it, and this is partially adding, but it's also a, kind of a, like a little bit of a critique, is sort of how race and racism is really linked to parenting styles and parenting practice. So I've really developed sort of a race-centered critique of concerted cultivation and argue that it's a racialized parenting practice. So, for instance, uh, black parents or Latino parents are parenting their kids in similar, you know, thinking of strategies or certain types of lessons. That's very much a deliberate style of parenting. Uh, so it kind of adds to this layer. And it's very much linked to how then their children interact with social institutions like schools or particular neighborhoods and potentially future work opportunities. Could you could you provide a, an example of that? So I don't know, any, any type of story to explain how that, how that plays out or what you've seen in your own research? Yeah, so part, when I've interviewed families of color, I've often talked with them about how one, if they've, ex- if they've experienced racism or they've seen their children experience racism and how they've dealt with that. Um, so often, or how they prepare their children for this. This is one of the kind of key things I argue is that uh, parents really help their children often to develop a positive racial identity or sort of cultivate an awareness of sort of how social environments are racialized. So this can include, right, so a parent particularly saying, you know, they intentionally uh, don't put their kid in majority white spaces too often. They might do it once for a sport particularly, but they sort of actively seek out uh, multiracial, multi-ethnic environments to sort of reduce the possibility of sort of facing right a, a moment of racism, right? Or it is talking with them just even more, more verbally like, hey, this could happen, right? Uh, kind of basically rejecting, basically how to deal with like a white gaze. You might be judged for your actions or judged more harshly, et cetera. So those are some, those are some examples, um, and really, I think these are very much interwoven with it's a it's a it's a parenting style, and right there's different types of styles. So some people, even parents of color, some people will tell their children, you know, they want to see everyone kind of in a colorblind way, right? They want their kid to be treated, they want their kid to not judge people for the color of their skin, right? And potentially that can have an impact on how you know you would respond to an incident of prejudice or discrimination within say, a school, for instance. With, uh, with the parents of color that you were talking to, did this cross class lines? Because as you were saying before with LaRoe, the two parenting styles are very much divided along uh, the class background. So did this kind of transcend that, or did it intersect with and work with the different classes? So there's variations, but generally this is one of my points, is that racialized conservative cultivation kind of goes across class backgrounds, right? It's where race and class weave together, but in sort of the style may be a little different, or it might be articulated in a particular different way. But the general like awareness of it and kind of recognition that this is a part of parenting uh, crosses multiple class uh, class backgrounds. And I, uh, one good example is, 
even this is from a Latino uh, mother. She's she's trying to get she's working class, uh, single mother trying to get her kid involved in many organized activities, right? Which are uh, and that t- takes money, it takes labor. She's a single mother, but she's very much in reference. She's very much aware, like she needs to get certain. T- she has to make sure her kid can do it because and or be dressed a certain way, like for instance, the proper shoes. Because she doesn't want her son to be judged as, oh, there's that poor Latino boy, right? So very much aware, again, that she hasn't, she's thinking actively, like she's trying to do concerted cultivation, but very much with this awareness for how race and class, and classism, basically, racism and classism can impact her child. So in bringing in increased attention to race and the way it plays a role in parenting styles, were there other theorists that you drew on or you found worked particularly well? with Annette LaRose ideas, or was this more uh, your own formulation, just building off her her approach? Definitely uh, drew on other scholars from a wide range of actually fields. So there's a lot of work on uh, scholars who study racial socialization. For instance, Aaron Winkler has a lot of work on African-American social, racial socialization. There's actually more studies about white racial socialization, which I didn't talk about too much, but it's still a part of conservative cultivation as well. Like from Margaret Hagerman or Megan Underhill, and also then really thinking about how kind of racial ideology works through here. So scholars like Charles Mills and Bonilla Silva. And then I didn't talk about this yet, but a key aspect of sort of, which is kind of another level for concerted cultivation, it builds off LaRoe and kind of the consequences. This is not a theoretical, is that right, these parenting styles can kind of match, concerted cultivation can mesh really well with the idea of opportunity hoarding, right? You're in a competitive society Right, you have to secure the best for your future kid, and like that is very normative. So then you're drawing upon the works by Di- Amanda Lewis, and then Hillary Libby Freeman, who studies very, uh, who builds off LaRoe a lot, who talks about sort of really hyper-competitive youth activities, whether that's chess, soccer, uh, dance, and kind of the culture around it um, as well. And lastly, W.E.B. Du Bois, his work. I mean, and he's a you know a foundational scholar for race and sociology and just the field in general. But he did a, he has an excellent article, and Andrew Douglas recaps this as well. His work on the competitive society in the United States, and how basically as we move into supposedly an era where race does not matter in sort of compet in the liberal society, it's based on competition and meritocracy. That often then we can that basically racial minorities, people of color who have been historically marginalized you have higher chances of not being able to see succeed in this competitive society, right? Because history has created these inequalities. So I draw on that as well to talk about kind of the implications for concerted cultivation, right? And this is, I think, building off more on LaRoe, what we're seeing today is that now what she described was very accurate and what she theorized is very important. But also I think concerted cultivation is becoming very much hegemonic or normative, even like working class parents are trying to do this parenting style, which is kind of a more recent phenomenon, I'd say. That's how normative it's become or seen as the way to properly parent. So if everyone's trying to do concerted cultivation, right, it takes certain material resources, racial privilege, etc. So people can will try to do it, but not everyone can. And I think W.E.B. Du Bois' work really kind of helps understand that better. And what's the implications of that? When you're talking about bringing in these ideas of W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the things that highlights for me is how at least in sociological terms, or especially in terms of sociological theory, this work is still really new. I mean, 15 years old is contempt. I mean, we think about contemporary theory being anything since the 1950s. <laughs> so for something that's 15 years old, it's very recent. But at the same time, 
have parenting styles changed a lot in those 15 years? Have we seen noticeable shifts or trends? Um, because this is still something we assign an intro and I'm wondering how, how different is, is the experience of, of students reading this stuff? Yeah, actually we are seeing some shifts and really it's very much linked to what she was observing, but really concerted cultivation has elements of it are very much being sort of adopted or seen as normative across class backgrounds, which really speaks to kind of like the power of uh, basically like middle-class culture, right? Um, so really you see this kind of parenting style be celebrated Right, and sort of in popular culture or seen as normative in terms of you like read parenting handbooks and magazines it's all very much about being intensive and really involved in your kid's life setting them up for different opportunities and even in our interviews that we're doing we're a part of a project where we're interviewing lots of families about their experiences in extracurricular activities and really when we talk to working class parents right they often talk in similar ways that can be classified under concerted cultivation they talk about you know, making sure their kids are, uh, you know, occupied, having structured time, really to be part of these activities for all these amounts of reasons to help them in the future. So really kind of seeing, they're all trying to seek to perform this parenting style. Did you see any examples in your study of parents romanticizing or trying to seek out that more hands-off natural growth model? Or has that just become something that's seen as sometimes a structural necessity, but not something desired? So yes, there is this is from many parents from across class backgrounds, but often you'll see it from that, that there's a nostalgia for <laughs> this kind of, oh, I wish, you know, when I was a kid, I could just kind of go around the neighborhood and do my thing, right? I wasn't so busy, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't so intense and competitive. So I think people are very much aware of kind of the, the culture, the kind of precarity, the anxiousness that's kind of permeating our society and, and parenting. But you see this kind of from across uh, class backgrounds as well. And there's much, this is, this is kind of a new development, I think, because as Lynn LaRoe was doing her work, I think it was kind of, it was this more kind of strict or more rigid sort of class separation. But now given kind of precarity and pressures to parent and pressures to be, be a good family, um, um, very much people are aware of this. And so you see there's people trying to intentionally do uh, natural accomplishment of growth or hands-off parenting. They're out there. Uh, they're starting in different little ways, right? Um, I'll give you an example. For instance, in my own dissertation research, we have parents who are intentionally seeking out this uh, soccer community where it's very much unstructured. It's very much relaxed. They're not the parents have to be as involved. But again, these are middle class parents who like research this 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 community to be a part of. It's not sort of this organic thing that happens in a neighborhood. So it's a kind of a, it's a mix of of all these dynamics. Larose talks about. All right. As a final question, this is my favorite thing to ask. Reflecting back on your experience, reading Annette LaRoe, drawing on her ideas, conducting your own research, talking about these ideas in the classroom, what would you say to the listener is the reason that other people should read Annette LaRoe? And that could be other sociologists, it could be students who are exposed to these ideas for the first time, grad students, or even people outside of academia. Uh, so, so what would you tell them? So for undergrads, I think it's really, and the general public actually, it's really valuable because I think for her presentation of theory, particularly of, you can say, Borduzian theory, but really theories of social reproduction, how inequality is reproduced and related to culture, it's really understandable, right? It's very legible. And but it doesn't necessarily mean it's but it's not less nuanced or less critical, but it's very it's very deep but but understandable. 
But I actually think, in addition for undergrads and the general public, because it's really illegible work, um, illegible work that with regards to theory, I think for graduate students or faculty, and I think it's also work to really be engaged with, not just as something to cite as an example of how class is reproduced, but really a, a thing, a work to to develop theory, because because of how she makes this connection and merges analysis of everyday culture, the agency of individuals, and larger sort of social systems or structures and institutions. And she does this with clarity. I think that's a model that uh, folks should be striving uh, to do when they present theory and, and analyze their own projects in these areas. Well, thank you again for joining us. It was a pleasure getting to hear about your research and how you engage with Annette LaRose ideas. Thank you, Kyle. It was very fun. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme song, undergraduate sociologists Alicia Rios and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. <laughs>